This is Cliff May here to introduce a special edition of FTD's Foreign Policy. The People's Republic of China recently tested an advanced new hypersonic missile that circles the Earth and is designed to evade U.S. defenses and conduct a nuclear attack against the American homeland. New Pentagon report reveals that Beijing is expanding the size of its nuclear arsenal much faster than expected, and that in 2020, China's rulers launched more ballistic missiles for testing and training than the rest of the world combined. Moscow conducted an anti-satellite test on November 15th that created more than 1,500 pieces of trackable space debris, putting American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts on the International Space Station in danger. The test also demonstrated again Russia's ability to target American satellites that we depend on for our security. Meanwhile, Iran continues to expand its ballistic missile arsenal and inch toward a nuclear weapons capability. As the Biden administration prepares its nuclear posture review for publication next year, what should we understand about the Chinese and Russian nuclear weapons threats to Americans and to our allies, and what should we do about it? Should the U.S. adopt a sole purpose or no first use nuclear policy? What is the status of U.S. efforts to modernize our nuclear deterrent? What is the role of missile defense in all of this? And what level of defense spending is needed to secure our nation? U.S. Congressman Mike Turner, who represents Ohio's 10th District, is a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee and serves as ranking member of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, which oversees, among other things, strategic deterrence, nuclear weapons, missile defense, and space. To discuss these issues and more, Representative Turner sat down with Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, Bradley Bowman, here on this special edition of Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Thank you, Cliff. Congressman Mike Turner, I want to welcome you to this special edition of Foreign Policy. You rather appreciate having me, and certainly thank you. Uh, for all that that uh, you guys do, this it, this is an incredibly important time uh, for uh, us to come together and support democracies. And your uh, your lane is is one where people can come and get additional information, get knowledge. And I appreciate your advancement of of that dialogue. It's important so that we can keep the world safe. Thank you for staying. I appreciate that. So before we jump into the defense policy issues that I'm so eager to discuss with you. I thought it might be helpful for the listeners to know a bit more about the district you represent in Congress. So uh, you'll correct me on the details here, but after serving as mayor of Dayton, Ohio for eight years, you were elected to Congress, I think in 2002, uh, you represent Ohio's 10th district. If you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, district you represent? 
Sure. Well, we're uh, you know Dayton, Ohio, uh, sits uh, north of Cincinnati and west of Columbus. So we're part of you know Southwest Ohio, which really is, is somewhat of an integrated economic area. Um, we have uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base here, which is the single largest site employer for the state. Uh, Thirty-two thousand people inside the fence, about twenty thousand people outside the fence. Uh, they're also host to the Air and Space Intelligence Center, so they do a great deal of assessment of what our adversaries are doing and how that should translate into with the research labs that are there and the acquisition uh, arm that is there, uh, what we need to be doing uh, to make certain we advance and modernize. I'm so glad you mentioned the National Air and Space Intelligence Center or NASIC as, as wonks like me know it. When I worked in the Senate, uh, they were often a go-to source for some of the best intelligence analysis on what our adversaries are do, doing in the air and space domains. And and uh, history buffs will be interested to know that Wright Patterson, of course, is named after in part for the Wright brothers, who uh, did some famous uh, flights there, I believe, in 1904, 1905. So it's just, uh, I thought I'd throw that in there for the history buffs. But uh, anyway, you serve on the uh, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, so the House's Intelligence Committee. So you have access to intelligence that the vast majority of Americans and even members of Congress don't have access to. So that informs what, uh, presumably, what you're saying here today, even though we're going to be talking in the unclassified domain. You also serve on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, which you know, but the listeners may not, is, is the committee in the House that's responsible for the oversight of the U.S. Department of Defense. And like all committees, it's divided into subcommittees. You serve on two very important ones, the Air Land Subcommittee and the Strategic Forces Subcommittee. Congressman, what is the Strategic Forces uh, Subcommittee and what's its responsibility? Sure. So the Strategic Force Committee has basically five different uh, categories of jurisdiction, uh, nuclear weapons, missiles, missile defense, space, and military intel. I always describe it as five great reasons not to sleep at night. And then the Air and Land Subcommittee has the acquisition responsibility for everything that flies in the air and everything that rolls around on the ground. The um, Serving then on the Intelligence Committee, I have the same portfolio, nuclear weapons, missile defense, space, military intel, um, only uh, with our adversaries. Um, uh, what are they doing? So it, it's a nice marriage of working on what our modernization, our programs are, and then assessing what our adversaries are doing. Uh, I also have in my portfolio NATO. I've served as the president of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. I just came off of this year chairing um, their defense uh, committee. And uh, because of that on the intelligence committee, I also have five eyes in NATO back in my portfolio. Thank you for that. What a great summary. And I like how you formulated it, where you kind of talk about the threat focus there on the Intel Committee, and then what do we do about it? I mean, that's very much the culture at, at our think tank, whereas we don't want to just kind of sit around and admire the problems or wring our hands about it. We want to understand the problem, not for its own sake, but to determine what we need to do to better protect Americans and our allies. So uh, I, I love the way you frame that. So you're the senior Republican on the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, the, what we call the ranking member. Um, so with your permission, I'd love to just kind of run through some of the threats uh, real quickly here, and, and then we can talk about what the heck we should do about them. So starting with China, uh, in mid-October, as Americans following the news may recall, we learned that China had tested this summer an advanced new hypersonic missile that apparently circled the earth and is designed to evade U.S. defenses and conduct a nuclear attack against our homeland. America's top military officer, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff, General Milley, characterized that test as, quote, very close, unquote, to a Sputnik moment. Referring, of course, to the 1957 satellite launch with the Soviet Union, it shocked Americans at the time and demonstrated that the Kremlin was a was a formidable military technology adversary. Uh, Congressman, what did the Chinese do this summer uh, with that test, and how concerned uh, should we be? Yeah. 
Well, to avoid classified aspects of it, so we'll talk about what has been in, in the media. The um, as as you know, um, the United States was the leader in hypersonics, and unfortunately, as so many things, um, where we take a lead in both science and technology, uh, we took a pause, and China didn't take a pause, um, and they uh, have continued to develop uh, very capable um, hypersonic uh, uh, delivery vehicles. And in the last test, they married it uh, to, as you just indicated, um, a, uh, a rocket and then um, a orbital um, a path that uh, one is threatening in and of itself because it is a nuclear capable um, delivery vehicle that is in space. Um, the manner in which hypersonics move is very unpredictable. So it's very hard to, to track and it's certainly hard to defend against. Um, but I think people are talking about it as a Sputnik moment because due to the pause that we took, uh, we can't do this. It's not as if like we got to watch someone do something and then tomorrow we're going to go roll our rocket out to the to the launch pad and, and uh, accomplish the same thing. So that's where it's a wake up call when it's not just that <clears throat> either by volume uh, an adversary is, is advancing, but by capabilities an adversary is advancing where we have not yet gone, especially when it's an area where we ourselves um, could have, have been there, but paused because we didn't think. We always you know, try to wait for the threat to mature before we take that next step. You know, Sometimes we need to just advance just where a knowledge advances uh, so that we're not caught off guard as we just were. I think for my part, I think that's really well said. And, and, and we'll talk about North Korea a little bit later, but I mean, it feels like we're always playing catch up with the North Koreans. And I would argue part of that is because we took a pause on our missile defense and then we're always trying to play catch up as a result. So point well taken for my part on that. Admiral Charles Richard, the uh, as you know, the commander of uh, STRATCOM, Strategic Command, which is responsible for deter deterring nuclear attack on, on our nation, our allies, has said that we are seeing, quote, a strategic breakout by China, unquote, that he calls breathtaking. Do you agree that we're seeing a strategic breakout in terms of Beijing's expansion of its nuclear program? And, and why would you say that? Absolutely. The, um, you know, we, we come right off of the Obama, you know, world without nuclear weapons uh, declaration and, and vision. And um, and then uh, once again, we took um, a, a pause in not advancing our own nuclear capabilities where we have this aging infrastructure, these these aging capabilities to, to see an adversary. Um, and, and this is one where you know, we were just talking about the two different categories, right? Capabilities and volume take steps in both areas is, is very troubling. Um, China did not have a, uh, a triad, is now uh, you know, fielding a, a triad. And this goes beyond, you know, some people say, well, what's happening with the United States and Taiwan? Or is this all about trying to deter the United States? This is well beyond the deterrence. What they're trying to achieve in hypersonic weapons, in, in the capability of weapons, and in the volume, the new ICBM fields that have been uh, reported in the press, uh, what they're doing with subs, what they're doing with planes uh, and uh, you know, air uh, delivered missiles, uh, even what they're doing in space in, in threatening uh, our assets in um, with the last test, perhaps even nuclearizing um, uh, space. You, you really see not just that their temperament has changed, that they've been more aggressive in their neighborhood and with their adversaries, but this is not modernization. This is not deterrence. They are seeking dominant capabilities um, that uh, we need to be very concerned about. Well, thank you for that. And, and sometimes I feel like in the discussion in Washington, 
we tend to like artificially bifurcate what they're doing in the nuclear domain, suggesting that that's over here and that's not going to have implications, for example, in the Taiwan Strait. How would you see a more formidable Chinese nuclear program being relevant to a, a, a potential crisis, for example, in the Taiwan Strait? Right. Well, you know, we I think any analysis of China and the, 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 their nuclear capabilities has got to include North Korea. I mean, the one thing that we know is there would not be a nuclear North Korea, but for China's uh, consent and, and, and permission. Um, so, you know, already you have uh, an understanding that their policy uh, sees nuclear weapons uh, in, in a manner where it's a permissible destabilizing force. It's, it's destabilizing that North Korea has nuclear weapons uh, pointed at, at South Korea. And if you look at the capabilities that, that China has, it's not just, again, in volume that they're increasing or in capabilities that place the United States mainland at risk. It's also their short range capabilities. I, the, in, if there is ever going to be a conflict with China, um, the, the United States would have to go there and the logistics of deployment um, there, they are uh, uh, fashioning their portfolio of capabilities so that they not only can hold us at bay, they can um, do significant damage to the manner in which the United States would have a presence in the Pacific. Thank you for that. It seems to me that uh, China is conducting uh, this strategic breakout, this massive uh, development, development of a modernized nuclear triad that has a ground, air, and sea legs to it in an incredibly uh, secretive in a way that is not transparent at all. You know, and some some listeners might say, "Well, of course they are. They're the Chinese Communist Party. What else would you expect?" But why why is um, why is that lack of transparency uh, problematic? Do you believe it's problematic? Uh, and, and and what does that force us to do when we're not quite sure what's going on? Right. So you know, this huge contrast between obviously the the United States relationship with Russia, which I know we're going to discuss separately, but the um, you know there there are no that there are no um, treaty foundational exchanges between the United States and China on military capabilities, uh, where Russia and the United States have sought uh, to, to share information in part uh, as a stabilizing force. Uh, China has specifically uh, sought to obscure uh, the, what, what they're doing. The last test of hypersonics that just occurred um, you heard many people say that you know they were they were unaware that China had that capability until it was actually um, you know in in, in orbit. Um, that um, um, that's concerning because not just we don't know what test will happen next, but we don't know what else that they have have perfected. When we see in the in the popular press uh, the ICBM uh, fields that they're building, uh, silo after silo after silo, we don't know. Um, you know, what's going to go in them, how many missiles are going to go in them. When you hear this, the stories of the uh, the tunnels, the road uh, mobile uh, vehicles that they have, the, the possibility of uh, a nuclear capable uh, missiles, even today, when people talk about how many nuclear weapons uh, that, that China has, they say, you know, this is our estimate and we don't know, we don't know how accurate it is. Um, that, that's of, of great concern for anyone who's trying to, to um, uh, fashion a path to make certain that there's not conflict. Oh, thank you for that. And it seems to me <clears throat> that, uh, uh, and, and you said it to, uh, to some degree, is that when they're so secretive, it, it, it makes miscalculation more likely on either side. And it also makes our military planners assume the worst. All right. And, and, and so if they would be more transparent, 
um, then, you know, then maybe there'd be less likelihood of miscalculation and we wouldn't necessarily have to always assume the worst. Um, right. So for your example, the, I, the ICBM fields, I mean, we're going to have to, in order for deterrence, we will have to be able to hold at risk the and every silo in all of these ICBM fields, as opposed to uh, if they were, were seeking to just have um, you know, stability, uh, we could work together on what's really necessary for a country to arm itself in order to ensure its own integrity. Exactly. And, and I understand you would know better than me, but I understand that there's been multiple outreach to Beijing, you know, to try to initiate the strategic dialogue. And, and we're getting basically the stiff arm at every turn is my understanding, more or less from them. Um, so you mentioned Russia, Congressman, I'd love to transition to them. Uh, you know, uh, you know, China, the China problem is uh, ominous enough and significant enough. But unfortunately, we have uh, Moscow doing some very concerning things at the same time. Uh, would, can you provide us kind of an update on what you see Russia doing in terms of modernizing uh, its nuclear triad? Right. And, and um, you know, what they're doing is so troubling that, that I, I hesitate to, to, um, to, to tag it as modernization. Because, you know, modernization is what we're doing, which is where we're taking capability that has aged and we're replacing it with uh, a more reliable, more stable, uh, more safe, uh, but, but same capability. Like China, uh, they are seeking brand new capabilities. They're fielding what many people are calling exotics, weapons that no one has ever seen before. They have already fielded uh, hypersonic uh, tipped uh, ICBMs, uh, which we do, we do not have uh, any nuclear uh, hypersonic weapons. Um, so the, um, this, again, goes beyond issues of deterrence, uh, both with China, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, excuse that Russia gets is that they're trying to overcome our, uh, our, our missile defense systems. Well, none of this is necessary to overcome our missile defense system. What they already had was certainly capable of overcoming our missile defense. You know, with China, the excuse is, oh, you know, they're, they're trying to prepare because they, they may take military action against Taiwan. Everything that they're doing is well beyond any capability that they would need uh, to, to, to threaten Taiwan. So for, for Russia, to, you know, where we've been in... Um, periods of arms control um, where we've been in, in periods of, of seeking stability between the two of us, recognizing that, um, you know, although there was a period where the United States and NATO declared that Russia was not an adversary, adversary self-declare. And Russia has clearly uh, placed itself in, in a category where it views the United States as an adversary. So when, when an, a self-declared adversary <clears throat> takes undertakes such an investment uh, in both nuclear capabilities, destructive capabilities, um, expanding their military, their military um, uh, might, um, you know, you have to take notice because it is directed at you. Exactly. And I'm so glad you, you refined my wording on modernization because that's exactly right. They're not just modernizing old systems. They're dramatically expanding their nuclear arsenal. And much, as you'll know better than me, again, much of that expansion is in areas not covered under current, the current New START Treaty. As some listeners will know, the, uh, the Biden administration, one of the first things it did was extend the New START Treaty, which covers some of the strategic weapons, the weapons with longer ranges. But a large portion of what Putin is doing is in these, uh, I would call them strange, loving, bizarre weapon systems that are not governed by that treaty at all. Um, and um, so what are your thoughts on, was that the right move for the Biden administration to extend the New START Treaty? And what criticism would you have of its current formulation? Well, I, I you know, I- there, there are two things I'm not a big fan of. You know, one is anything that's unilateral, which um, you know we see a lot of that on the House floor of attempts to unilateral disarm 
or unilaterally restrict what the United States is doing. And, and the second is, is to enter into an agreement without getting anything. You know, in both, you walk away from the table with this, with uh, either the status quo or, or your adversary. Um, that's why you have a treaty with them. Um, having an advantage. And in this instance, we clearly see that Russia has an advantage. They are investing in, as you just described, areas that where they can advance uh, their technology, their capability, and the risk to us um, with, without um, having to come to the table and negotiate on any of those issues. And we're not doing the same. Uh, there, there is no arms race. There's just a, a, a you know, one side is, is running really fast. Uh, and, and and nobody is is trying to compete with them, and and that uh, I think the New Start Treaty would, was a an opportunity in its renewal to sit down and open that conversation. No, I, I agree. I, I, my two primary criticisms of what the Biden I understand the desire to maintain some level of of capability to kind of see into what they're doing in the strategic level weapons. But my two criticisms of it would be it doesn't cover all these other weapons that Putin is developing, and it didn't include China. So. I mean, China's had a free pass all this time. And so it just, it seems like we now are in a trilateral competition, which, you know, Cold War uh, uh, scholars would tell us is even more uh, destabilizing and tough to manage in a, in a bilateral competition. And, and we're, we're codifying these restrictions with Russia and China's meanwhile getting a free pass and, and not in so much of what Putin's doing is not even covered. So those are two of my concerns that I have. Uh, you know, Congressman, uh, some people say, hey, you know, this, this all sounds great, strategic arms treaty, but, you know, we can't trust Putin. Right. Can, can we how confident are we that that Russia is complying with New START or would, would comply with any any other new treaty we'd want to develop with them? Well, I mean, clearly he has shown he cheats um, and he has no uh, uh, commitment to, to treaties whatsoever. Uh, you know, you have you know, certainly the INF treaty um, where we he, they were testing and then now have fielded uh, weapons that violate the INF. Uh, you have the Open Skies Treaty, where they were repeatedly uh, violating the Open Skies Treaty, but we, you know, continued to comply because, it, it, you know, to some, no treaty is better than, um, I mean, a, a broken treaty is better than no treaty. I, I, I and no, you know, a broken treaty is no treaty. Um, the um, and then, of course, what we're seeing right now, as you and I are having this discussion on the podcast, um, the. Um, you know, Russia had entered into the Budapest Agreement uh, with the United States, with Ukraine, guaranteeing the territorial integrity of Ukraine in exchange for them to not be a nuclear power after the Soviet Union had disintegrated. And we have you know, reports of 100,000 troops and tanks amassing already. Uh, they have violated the territorial integrity of both that treaty and Ukraine by annexing Crimea. Um, it looks as if... Um, um, that uh, Putin is intent on continuing uh, to violate the territorial integrity of a, a sitting democracy, a validly elected. Um, and as we know from what Putin has said in his own country, uh, you know, his long-term view is that the Soviet Union's geography, even though it's not, would not be the Soviet Union, should be reconstituted. And that means that Ukraine is not it. It's not as if he has some just, um, specific um, you know, complaint with respect to uh, the relationship with, with Ukraine. And this is an appetite that will not be fed. Right. You have an authoritarian bully trying to dominate a, democ a beleaguered democracy and doing it with military force. And just uh, last Thursday, I believe he threw, flew uh, two strategic nuclear bombers over Belarus in, in a very aggressive manner. Um, so, Congressman, you mentioned space. This is one of the other areas that your subcommittee oversees. 
uh, on May 24th, I know you, your subcommittee held a hearing on priorities for national security space programs. I noticed in your opening statement, you said, quote, this is one of the most important topics, perhaps beside nuclear modernization that we are dealing with. You cited, quote, the provocative actions that China and Russia are taking in space. What uh, provocative actions are, uh, in terms of China and Russia in space, are, are you uh, referring to? Sure. So um, General Raymond, the new uh, commander for uh, Space Force, is doing an excellent job in declassifying uh, what our adversaries are doing in space. Uh, you know, so many times we would worry about means, methods and techniques and something provocative would happen. And, you know, everyone in the intelligence committees, and the armed services committees would be informed. But but we could not enter into the public debate or even the worldwide debate with our allies and with others as to uh, what uh, these countries are doing. Now, uh, famously, China be began uh, their foray into space uh, by destroying one of their own satellites and creating a debris field that was completely irresponsible. Uh, they continue uh, to develop uh, weapon systems uh, targeted at space, um, jammers, um, those that will uh, destroy capabilities in space, uh, ability to, to shoot as they've uh, proven uh, previously. Um, satellites from the, uh, the ground uh, and also to place in space uh, weapons that are a threat to other, other uh, satellites. We just saw uh, Russia in the um, almost uh, you know, Russian doll way uh, launch a satellite that, that birthed a satellite that birthed a projectile that could destroy and ultimately did uh, their own uh, after um, it is, is, is public having chased several uh, of our assets. But the issue here is, is that in, um, in our efforts to ensure that space was not militarized, we didn't militarize it. Uh, so we're sort of, you know, to use the Star Trek term, shields down, if, if you were, up in space. So while our adversaries are looking at placing our assets at risk, we don't have defensive systems. Um, and um, we, we certainly don't look at, had not looked at space uh, as a fighting domain. So we're gonna have to shift um, Clearly, they um, they have made they have militarized space. We're well beyond that as a as a planet. We now see <laughs> that our adversaries uh, will will go there, and uh, we have to see how do we defend ourselves, uh, and how do we place their assets at risk. Well said. So China and Russia developed means to target our satellites from from on on, on Earth and in in space. All the way are you all the while at the United Nations and elsewhere trying to limit our ability uh, to do the same thing. Right. And so I would call that kind of the classic Soviet playbook. So do one thing, say another, while trying to restrain us with treaties that the, the Kremlin has no uh, intention of honoring, knowing that we'll probably abide by it for a while, you know, maybe for a decade or so, like, you know, the INF, they'll cheat. We're in a two-party treaty. The other side is not honoring. And, and it's, it's very cynical. And, we're, and I would argue we're seeing that playbook again in space. And as some listeners would know, and certainly Congressman, you know, well, we depend on those satellites for intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance, and missile defense, and some of the missile threats that we've already talked about with hypersonics, we're going to need those space-based capabilities to detect and track them. So if they simultaneously are developing these offensive systems to hit our homeland and hurting or damaging or threatening our ability to even detect those by going after our satellites, that's kind of a double whammy, if you will, of concern. Do I have that about right? Yeah, great deal if you can get it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Part of me doesn't blame them for trying. We're, we're suckers here sometimes. Anyway, moving to Iran. Um, um, you know, this is something I, back when I was working for Senator Kelly, uh, we focused uh, on, on, but, and I'm interested to hear kind of an update from you. 
Um, you know, for, for years, we've seen Iran developing space launch vehicle uh, ability to put uh, ostensibly for civilian purposes. But our intelligence community, as, as you know well, has told us for a long time that the same technology that you need for a space launch vehicle can also be an ICBM. Do you have uh, any concerns about Iran's ballistic program and the eventual deployment of an ICBM that could threaten our homeland from Iran? Sure. This is one of the, the great failures of the JCPOA, the uh, you know Iran uh, nuclear agreement, um, is, is that they were not restrained in missile development. So when people talk about breakout and you know how long does it take for them to have a weapon, um, the um, when when you don't have to factor in a delay in developing a delivery vehicle, um, you, you expedite the threat. And, and here they've been able to continue their development of missile technology uh, that, that places the homeland of the United States at risk. Uh, it's not just Middle East, it's not a conflict over there, it's a conflict right here. Um, and um, you know, that's one of the con- main concerns when people talk about it, and when the last administration talked about you know, renegotiating the JCPOA, when bringing Iran back to the table, you know, there were an, a number of areas. You know, one, you know, an insufficient inspection regime. Uh, the fact that it was limited in time, um, that there was a time period in which they would no longer be restrained, um, and that ICBMs were 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 not their missile technology, their space technology was not restricted. Now, the Trump administration added an additional element, and that was their maligned activities in the region. Um, and certainly, I think that's an issue. I think it goes to just as you said with Putin. You know, can you trust them? Uh, you know, clearly, if, if their maligned activities are occurring at, at the pace and at the aggressiveness that they are in their region, um, you know, they're they're not in, intending to uh, you know to have uh, peace and harmony break out in the world. I think that's probably a safe assumption. They have the largest ballistic missile program in the Middle East. They've used that that missile program to uh, attack two bases in Iraq in an effort to kill our troops there. They've used cruise missiles and drones to attack the. The oil facility in Saudi Arabia, they're proliferating these missiles to their proxies throughout the Middle East and drones as well. And they're working on a space launch vehicle program that could eventually permit them to build an ICBM to threaten our homeland. And so and they, not support, good, and they support Hamas and Hezbollah with correct, missile technology. Correct. And uh, I remember I remember the DNI back uh, several years ago saying that if they do eventually develop a nuclear weapon, that the means by which they would probably deliver that, of course, would be a ballistic missile. So this is something we have to watch closely. You mentioned the uh, the, the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Agreement. I can't resist the temptation to ask you briefly about that. The, the Biden administration is kind of maneuvering to potentially go back into that deal and list some sanctions. Um, should uh, here's my question: Should any company contemplating doing business in Iran, American, European, or otherwise company, consider that any Biden administration deal with Iran that involves sanction relief might be reversed in a subsequent Republican administration? I mean, is that something that a company who's thinking about business abroad should, should be thinking about right now? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and and let's go go back. I think this is a portion that gets missed about what the Obama administration did. Um, that colors our argument because we, we accept the construct that we're already in. And, and instead of recognizing that there's a failure that occurred in the past that, that inhibits our ability in the future. And that is, this was not a treaty. It was not a treaty because the deal was not good enough to be able to get through the Senate. And it wasn't good enough because it didn't have an inspection regime that was, was, was verifiable. Uh, it ha- was limited in its scope, and it, and it did not include missiles. It did not provide protection to the United States or a long-term commitment from Iran that they would not become a nuclear state. 
So it allowed then the Trump administration to revisit the deal. The Trump administration, by the way, didn't just walk away from the deal. They actually said, we want the deal negotiated. They said renegotiated. They said to the European allies, look, this deal is going to expire anyway. These are the three. They had four, the additional the maligned activities. These are the areas in which we want everyone to come to the table. And they were very clear with Iran what they wanted. No one was willing to do it. So the Trump administration canceled the deal. If Biden, Biden administration does again the same that the Obama administration has done, which is go to the table and get a deal, as John Kerry so famously said, we got the deal we could get as opposed to the deal that we need, um, the um, and gets a deal that does not have permanence and cannot be uh, approved by the Senate, then yes, the next administration I do believe, likely will, and rightly so, will set aside anything that's not good for America's national security. I'm glad you went through that history there of, of, the, of what the Obama administration did with respect to kind of uh, not making it a treaty. And, and you, you, I think you said exactly right. They didn't do that because they couldn't get enough bipartisan support. And that wasn't because of, you know, Republican, uh, I, you know, uh, uh, cynical, you know, blocking, not wanting to give them a foreign policy win. There were real concerns. And had they gone through the treaty process, those concerns potentially could have been addressed and you would have had an agreement that might have been stronger and would have withstand the test of time. And if we see the Biden administration make the same mistake now, then uh, I, I fear that we're repeating that mistake. And any company looking to invest, and boy, that's that's a sketchy investment because it's probably you're probably going to have a reversal of those sanctions pretty soon. So that's that's I'm not a businessman, but that's one thing I'd be thinking about. So transitioning to, uh, <laughs> I do national security, not business, but I can resist. So I want to transition, um, uh, Congressman, to um, okay. So we've talked a lot about what the bad guys are doing, right? But like you said, and like our culture deputy, we don't want to just admire the problem. We want to talk about what the good guys should be doing. So um, let, let's do that. So right now, um, uh, the United States is in the process of modernizing our nuclear triad. As you said, unlike Russia, we're not doing some massive expansion. We're just new, uh, modernizing old systems that in many cases are way overdue for modernization. How is that uh, U.S. nuclear modernization uh, effort going from your perspective? And how important do you believe it is to finish the job and field a modernized nuclear triad, as well as of all the supporting command, control, and communication systems? Well, this is really essential. So the United States does have its nuclear weapon system as a deterrent to others. Um, it is not a, a threatening or aggressor um, a policy. It is a deterrent policy. Um, and um, it cannot be an effective deterrent policy if we don't have a reliable uh, nuclear weapons infrastructure. Uh, now, a lot of our nuclear weapons, uh, you know, come you know, some things all the way from the 60s, most from the 80s, um, <clears throat> everything decays. Uh, nuclear weapons are not like you know something that you just buy and put in the ground and, and you have forever. It, like anything else, needs to be modernized and, and replaced. Uh, we have done as much as we possibly can in life extension, uh, going in, tinkering, replacing a pipe here, kicking it on the side there. Uh, we're done. It's, it is time to rebuild the systems themselves. Um, that takes money and it takes a commitment. Now, the problem is that Congress keeps running one way and then tells all of the bureaucracy to follow them and then runs the other way. And so uh, as we do this back and forth as to what our modernization strategy is going to be, um, as to what um, even uh, you know our, our programming direction is going to be, it gets more expensive and it gets more complicated and it takes longer time. Uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we've turned the corner uh, that we're now from through the Obama, in the Obama administration, the Trump administration, now to the Biden administration, uh, in a linear fashion, going to reinvest. 
Um, now, there are those who very openly um, have um, uh, unilateral armament uh, uh, policies, plans. You know, they, they, they themselves believe um, that our nuclear weapon systems are a provocative force and they don't want us to have or field uh, a nuclear weapon system or modernized nuclear weapon system. So we do have that undercurrent that we have to overcome in order to make certain we modernize. Um, but this is an issue of all you have to do is look to see that our adversaries are raising the bar and we just want to stay where we are. At least let's not degrade. And the argument you often hear is that, you know, we don't need to, we better not modernize our systems because we might start an arms race, which I always, uh, you know, I always, uh, I always have to kind of laugh at that because as we've laid out here very already, quite clearly, China and Russia are already racing. The question is, how do we respond to protect our people, right? Absolutely. You know, and the other issue is, is that, I, you know, I think any foreign policy analysis or intelligence analysis that bases your adversary's motivation on solely what you're doing misses any assessment of the independence of the formulation of policy of our adversaries. I mean, sometimes people do things because that's what they want to do, not just because you've done something. I'm so glad you said that. You know, H.R. McMaster, who's the chair of our center, wrote a great, his great book, recent book, Battlegrounds, and he talks in there about strategic narcissism. You know, the idea that everything that happens in the world is a response to us, because after all, it's all about us. But, you know, actually, there are sometimes there are just evil people in the world that have to be countered. Sometimes there are regimes, there are authoritarian regimes that want to dominate others or, or take finite resources. And, and so and they might be doing it regardless of what we do. And, and so the idea that our missile defenses, you know, our, our 44 interceptors, right? Is it going to, is the explanation, it, it doesn't really pass in kind of basic level scrutiny, I would argue. You don't need um, hypersonics to overcome that. Correct. I mean, both China and Russia can already conduct a massive nuclear attack against the United States, period. And there's nothing we're doing with our missile defenses, I would say, sadly, anytime soon that's going to threaten that. So it, that argument just doesn't, in my view, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um, some, it seems like there's a, a bipartisan consensus, generally speaking, about modernizing our triad. The one area where there, there's been a little weakness is on the ground leg of the nuclear triad. Do you believe it would be a mistake to not pursue modernization of our ground? Why do we need all three legs? Why do we need the ground leg in particular? Right. Well, you know, the premise of those that believe that we can get rid of the triad is that the sub leg of the triad is invulnerable and it's absolutely false. Um, the, um, you know, there will be a day um, that the, the technology that we currently have deployed in our, our submarines and our sea-based deterrent um, will, will be discoverable. Uh, you know, right now they're stealth, uh, but everything doesn't remain stealth. You have to continue to, to reach uh, higher technology levels, our adversaries do more in trying to um, to discover it. Uh, as such, um, that means that you have to have uh, the other two legs of the triad. Um, to to believe that one is um, you know is is forever uh, going to be stealth uh, can lead you to make uh, incorrect policy decisions. The one constant is change. The Chinese and Russians know that we have advantages in the uh, in the submarine domain, and and we better believe they're going after that hard. There was apparently Australian Francis too. Yeah, the the AUKUS, the most awkward acronym ever. Australia, United States, UK. The deal that's going to help give Australia nuclear powered submarines, not nuclear armed submarines. 
uh, is just going to highlight this belief in Beijing that America has the best submarines in the world. And they understand that, that and that's the most survivable leg of our, of our triad. And they're going to go after it hard. And to assume that our submarines are going to be as undetectable and stealthy in 10 years as they are now, as you suggest, is a, is a bad assumption. And I would just highlight that there was a recent combined military exercise between China and Russia, where the whole premise of the exercise, in part, was trying to find an enemy submarine, corral it and kill it. So they're working on this. And so we, we, uh, we, I think we assume things about the future at our own peril. Um, uh, Congressman, one uh, question I wanted to definitely ask you in our time was this idea about the, the, um, the policy of sole purpose or no first use. So the, uh, as you know, and the listeners may not know, the, there's something called the nuclear posture review. This is something that every administration does where they develop the policy for our nuclear weapons. Um, and we expect uh, the Biden administration to release their nuclear posture review next year. There's reports that the Biden administration, Biden administration is considering changing the current U.S. policy related to sole purpose and no first use. What is that policy? What change is being considered and, and where do you come down? Yeah, so um, the um, first, uh, you know, let's talk about what how the administration is, is undertaking this. I mean, Jake Sullivan has said uh, that you know he he believes um, you know, that they want to do some things that show that they're not the Trump administration. I think well we all get that right. I don't think Trump would have left Bagram in the middle of the night, but nonetheless, um, I, we we don't need to change nuclear weapons policy for the Biden administration to distinguish itself as different from other administrations. Um, this has been something that that many um, wish to, to to change, and it buys us nothing with our adversaries. First off, there is no one who we would be in a conflict with, especially another nation that is a nuclear weapons state, who's going to believe um, that we would allow defeat and not use uh, nuclear weapons just because they haven't used nuclear weapons. That's no first use. You don't use them, we won't use them. We'll just go to the battlefield and see who wins. That's not why we have nuclear weapons. That's not realistic. No one expects that. So purpose, of course, you know, it's very similar. It, it's still trying to, to say that you know, we are our um, use of these weapons, our having these weapons, uh, are, are looking to, to our deterrence. But it, it ignores a couple of things. One, we have allies which are under our nuclear umbrella. There are nations that have not undertaken nuclear weapons development because we have agreed that our nuclear weapons will be a, an added deterrent for them. Japan, obviously, is a, you know, the, the easiest of example. That's a nation that easily could have um, undertaken a nuclear weapons program that in the neighborhood that they live in, especially with North Korea, they have relied instead upon the United States deterrent um, as um, a deterrent of those who might have nuclear weapons and, and uh, place Japan at risk. So first, we have to deal with our allies. The second aspect, as I was saying, our adversaries aren't going to believe it anyway. It buys you nothing. You get nothing from anybody who you might be in a conflict with by making these declarations. But the third, which is more troubling is if they, if they make those shifts, they get to make those shifts in policy formulation at the Pentagon um, and in uh, funding priorities. They get to say, well, this is now a lesser uh, priority. Modernization goes to the, to the back. Certainly any sense of, of trying to reach the same capabilities that our adversaries have won't be necessary if we have such a diminished uh, self-declared de policy. So I think their goal I, I think they know it buys us nothing with our adversaries. I think they know that it weakens us with our allies. 
I think they want it for internal purposes and it weakens overall our ability to defend ourselves. Thank you for that. And, I, and I'm hearing that uh, a survey or questionnaire, if you will, went out to a lot of our allies and uh, uh, that the Biden administration sent and the response, shall we say, was not good. <laughs> it's like not no, but heck no was is, was the response that seemed to come back. And so let's see uh, if this administration, which rightly prioritizes our allies and their opinions, is willing to listen to what their allies are telling them. Um, so in our remaining uh, few minutes, if, if I may, Congressman wanted to hit U.S. Homeland Missile Defense and Defense Spending and Allies. That's probably too much. But uh, quick thoughts on the status of U.S. Homeland Missile Defense. Where are we at and, and um, where do you think we need to go? You know, this is like hypersonics. This is one of those areas where we were advancing in a number of areas of technology and we took a pause because we assessed that the adversary's threat had not yet matured. And now we have a gap between what we could have been doing um, and what we need to be doing. And the, the greatest example of that, of course, is the airborne laser, uh, where we actually had a proof of concept um, as to an ability of a, an airborne laser to, in uh, launch phase, uh, to impact um, a threat uh, that's headed to the United States or one of our allies. We need to re-engage in the area of missile defense. You know, Israel's done a great job um, in improving uh, out missile defense. Before, you know, Iron Dome, people thought that missile defense was provocative. They thought it wouldn't work. They thought it was uh, it would cost too much and it was escalatory. Well, here, you know, here we see it's de-escalatory. Uh, it gives you space to be able to make a decision. Um, it works. Uh, it's cost effective. You don't have the damage or loss of, of life. Um, and uh, what we need to do now is go for the next generation that can actually make a difference in the threats that we see. And I, and I love that. Well, you know, we better not uh, deploy a homeland missile defense because it might concern the Russians. Well, newsflash, the Russians have long had more homeland missile defense interceptors than we've ever had. And here's here's the great part. Some of them are nuclear tipped. Imagine that <laughs> nuclear uh, an interceptor that's nuclear tipped that you're going to you're exploded by Moscow. So, I mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. And then, of course, we know the Chinese are developing aggressively missile defenses as well. So. We hear the argument that our missile defenses are destabilizing. I would argue what's more destabilizing is one side having robust missile defense and the other not. That, that, that's how I would respond to that argument. Um, defense spending, Congressman, and kind of doing the lightning round here. Uh, the Biden administration proposed a defense budget that wouldn't keep up with inflation. A lot of what we're talking about, it costs some money, but you know we're not talking about crazy level amounts of money. What are your thoughts on the, uh, on the defense budget we need uh, to defend our country? Well, the House and the Armed Services Committee did a plus up, um, and it, we did so on a bipartisan basis. I think in the end, Congress will deliver to the Biden administration um, a spending package on defense that's higher than they proposed. Um, I believe that that will occur with the uh, White House's support. I hope when they come back the next year that they now see the threat. You know, it's been interesting. I, I, I can tell you this about classified briefings. It's been interesting being with Biden administration officials uh, that are former Obama administration officials that will openly admit the world is different than how they believed that its trajectory would be. And that means, hopefully, the Biden administration will step to the table and start responding. Thank you for that. In our, our closing minute here, you know, I would just flag that the, uh, you know, the Biden administration, in addition to developing a nuclear posture review to be released next year, they're also developing a national defense strategy that will be released next year. Uh, and, uh, and you know, the number two at the Biden administration Pentagon is Kath Hicks, who served on the National Defense Strategy Commission, which recognized, recommended a defense budget, a three to 5% real growth in the defense budget. And we know that their 2020 budget didn't even keep up with inflation. And it also uh, identified five major threats, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. 
And to your point just now, each one of those five, I think a credible case can be made is worse now than it was in 2018. So if that's true, how the heck can we justify reducing our defense spending? That would be my uh, unsolicited editorial comment. Last question for you, Congressman, as, as our time closes here. You talked about your work with NATO and, and you've been an outspoken advocate um, in, in the Republican Party for the value of allies. I've talked about China and Russia are closer than they've been since the 1950s in many ways. Um, what is the, to the average American who doesn't do this full time like we do, what is the value of allies selfishly for us? How do we benefit from our alliances? Well, you know, even in a person's own personal life, uh, you, you know that when you gather people together who have similar values, uh, it strengthens uh, both you um, and them. And in this instance, what strengthens us in NATO and bringing our NATO allies together is the, is the commitment to democracy, which I know for your organization is, is so incredibly important. And, and that really is the, the voice of democracy, the voice of liberty. Um, making certain that our adversaries that don't share those values uh, get held to account for it because you know it's so many times um, they're they're seen as moral equivalents and they're not and having allies that can join together and make certain that our shared values can be the lens in which we view national and international security threats helps us it's good to have friends <laughs> we need yes. friends in this world well congressman turner thank you so much for talking i really enjoyed it hope you did too and, and thank, you, and thank you very much Appreciate your work. It's incredibly important. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.